Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS with the number four or communities for just schools. On Schoolhouse today, we are talking about the nation's $3.4 trillion mistake. I'm so excited to welcome Jim Freeman, who is the founder and director of the Grassroots Action Support Team, and Ricardo Martinez, who is the founder and co-executive director of Padres y Jovenes Unidos in Denver, Colorado. That's Parents and Young People United. Welcome to both of you, Jim and Ricardo. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thanks for having us. Ricardo, I'll start with you. What is the $3.4 trillion mistake? It's just uh, an overspending the resources that are going into mass incarceration and police departments that could rather go for hospitals, schools, job creations. It was really astonishing that that we could spend so much money in uh, creating a lot of human suffering rather than benefiting society. And Jim, this is a report that was put together by Communities United and Voice, which actually was on a previous episode of the Schoolhouse podcast, the Historic Change Youth Voice Breaks New Legal Ground episode, Make the Road New York and Urban Youth Collaborative, Padres y Jovenes Unidos, and Write on Justice, with support from the Grassroots Action Support Team. And you all worked together and were able to measure spending on things that contribute to mass incarceration and criminalization. How did you get to that $3.4 trillion number? What we want to do is look at how much money we were spending on the justice system as a whole. I think there's broad awareness across society that we spend a lot of money on corrections. I think what there's much less awareness on is how much more we're spending on police, how much more we're spending on prosecutors, how much more we're spending on the criminalization of immigrants. And so what we tried to do is add up all those categories. And we looked back over time after we adjusted for inflation and looked back how much we were um, spending per year. And what we really saw is in the early 80s, when there was this escalated push um, towards this tough-on-crime set of strategies plus the war on drugs. In the early 80s, there was a real dramatic jump in how much we were spending nationally and state by state. Mm-hmm. So that we followed that forward until the, the latest data that's available from the Department of Justice, which is for 2012. So then we have this 30-year period that we can look at. In the first year, 1982, we were spending, in today's dollars, about $90 billion a year nationally on the justice system. And that's $90 million with an M? Or $90 billion. Uh, $90 billion. Mm-hmm. $90 billion with a B that we were spending in 1982. And now, 30 years later, we are spending just under $300 billion a year, about two hundred ninety-seven a year. So what we did is then add up all those differences. And we said, what if we had just kept our justice system the same size over that time? Mm-hmm. How much more have we spent over that 30-year period compared to what we would have spent if spending had remained steady? And that's how we got that $3.4 trillion. Mm-hmm. 
which is really just a staggering number um, when you think about what else could have been done with those resources. I want to read a quote from the report that is talking about one piece of the justice system, and you're very careful to clarify that there are at least four components that folks should be focused on in the justice system, and one of them is police. And this quote says, one consequence of arming police as if they are at war and declaring that they are fighting a, quote, war on drugs or a, quote, war on gangs is that we have encouraged many of them to adopt a, quote, warrior mentality. Far too many officers are being trained to believe that the people they are supposed to be serving and protecting are instead their adversaries. In other words, our tax dollars are funding public servants to wage what they are being told is a war against their own people. The battleground for that war is overwhelmingly concentrated within low-income communities of color, where police are asked to play a very similar role to that of our occupying forces within Iraq and Afghanistan. As with any war, especially one that is more than 30 years old, alongside whatever gains may be made, it is impossible to avoid an abundance of devastating collateral damage. That is profound. And how do you all see that war playing out in schools? As the years go by, what we've seen and what we've been fighting against is making student behavior a crime. So then we start to just add more and more things that become misdemeanors and criminal activity. We have now police in the schools and heavy police presence in, in some of our high schools. We found out that there's even an armed security team within the Denver Public Schools, in addition to campus security and the police department being in the schools. So we see this idea of... Uh, that we have to keep things safe and keep it under control. And really has led to, for many years, having youth being charged with crimes that were before were just student behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, fights became assaults. You know, shattering the school became disturbing the peace. And the number of incidences, the police contact with the youth increased tremendously. Then they went to court, and then the courts got packed, and the courts got packed. You know, and so it's it's, it's a, a train wreck in the making here, mm-hmm. especially in schools in the low-income communities. And that's how we've seen it played out. Aside from you know, all the heavy presence outside the schools, where then people get ticketed and arrested for many of the things. But within the schools, you know, we see this climate of fear by the students, but the police presence. And so... It's not a healthy environment. What I appreciate about this report is that you really are able to marry strands of conversation to really bring together pieces of conversation that have been happening in parallel, and you bring them all into one quilt by really looking at the justice system and the investment in that justice system since 1982 And so the movement for Black Lives, the movement for school discipline reform, and the removal of police from schools, all of that is captured in this report. And in fact, one of the things that you say in the report is, it is now difficult to find any place in the United States that is not regularly patrolled by police, including many elementary schools. Jim, how did you come to this as a strategy for really investigating and interrogating what's happening in communities of color? Allison, what we really wanted to do is is try and make sense of what the members of organizations like Communities United and Patterson Homeless and New York and Make the Road New York were experiencing 
um, and really try to bring forth some data that can start to help to explain those experiences and, and that can be supportive of the movement for Black Lives and other folks who are lifting these issues up. And so what I think those organizations have all done is vocalized a, a dramatically shifting environment. You know, everyone agrees that, that police can serve an important function, but what I think folks are recognizing is that police intervention is a, is a pretty blunt instrument, and we are tasking them to deal with a much broader array of social problems and concerns and behaviors than we used to. And so we are asking them to play the role of, you know, drug treatment counselor and social worker and mental health therapist and so on, rather than actually <laughs> using our resources to pay for drug treatment counselors and social workers and mental health specialists. One of the things that you talk about in the report that police are asked to do, that we are tasking them with, in addition to all of the things that you just listed, Jim, is actually to generate revenue even for their various jurisdictions. Ricardo, as I say it, it sounds like a ridiculous notion <laughs> that we are asking law enforcement officers to also generate money for their, their localities. That is, in fact, what we're doing. How does that manifest? In Denver, over the years, and it's going back at least 15, 15 years, one of the city ordinances that was passed was about this uh, gang activity and then gang paraphernalia. And... Uh, Anything that that was even remotely linked to gang activity became part of the of the folder to reinforce the idea that gangs were increasing in numbers, significant numbers in our neighborhoods and in our schools. So anything an art student who or student was taking art classes and they had markers in their backpack and they were found with markers in the backpack and they were considered uh, potentially gang members for tagging. Mm -hmm. And so they created their own product industry where it served the interest to have as many gang members, people on a gang file, and they could get more money from the city and the mm -hmm. county and the state and the feds. For them, it was the more numbers they had in the books, the better it was for them. You know, when they ticketed a student for being disruptive or being, not being in class or having a fight, then they had to go get the diversion classes. They had to go to court, pay a fine, you know, have all these classes. And so it really was a, not only for them, but for other folks, a, you know, revenue stream. But for them directly, it was their gang unit increased tremendously mm -hmm. because then now they had the numbers to prove that, that there were, you know, gangs running amok in the schools. But in fact, they were just young people being young people. You know, how to tie the shoelaces. And they came up with a ridiculous thing, how to tie the shoelaces. Uh, whether if you were a Catholic and you had that the crucifix, it was really ridiculous. The name of this report is the $3.4 trillion mistake, the cost of mass incarceration and criminalization, and how justice reinvestment can build a better future for all. And so the starting point of the report and, and the end point as well is really building safe and healthy communities. And, you know, I've been adamant about reclaiming the notion of safety, that young people and people of color have to reclaim the notion of safety and that safety too often when police are interacting with communities of color and young people of color, that safety actually goes away. It diminishes in those encounters with police 
And so I appreciated your framing, your starting with the idea of safe communities is our goal, it's our aspiration, and we can do that. And the investment in the justice system has not actually created safer communities. In fact, in many instances, it has done the opposite. How has that been the case and and why has it been that that investment has not actually created safer conditions? Give an example. When we started our work around school discipline and how do we make a school safer, one of the striking features that we saw was this having police presence, and, and, and I mean heavy police presence around one of our high schools, uh, North High School. And every day, right before school, we would have four or five squad cars parked in the, in the there used to be a laundromat right across the street in the corner, on the street, on the sidewalk, and one right in the corner of part of the school property. And they were there every single day. And this has been on for years. Mm. Then inside, there were two more squad cars. On any given day, you would have five to seven police squad cars. And they'd be blaring on the PAs when the students were going out of school, you know, go home, get on the bus, get off the streets. Mm-hmm. And the tension that created in the community, I mean, the, the perception from the businesses was that our neighborhood was uh, climbed because people assumed, well, if the police is there, it's for a reason. And so there's going to be a lot of criminal stuff happening in the school. Mm-hmm. So the businesses were feeling that tension. The students were feeling that tension. Every, the whole neighborhood was feeling unsafe because they knew that the police had a reason to be there. Mm-hmm. So there's an idea that there was all this criminal activity, that there were gangs, that there was, you know, they were running, you know, uh, drugs and guns and all that stuff. And none of us was true. So when we when we did a survey, the students were talked about that they felt unsafe, not because of peers, but because of the, of the heavy police presence and the community. A lot of parents and everyone were feeling unsafe because they thought they were, you know, being overtaken by by gangs and criminals and that kind of stuff. Once we started pushing on them and they left, the police left. It was a transformation because we did a survey with businesses beforehand, and once the police left. There was no change in the activities. The streets were now overtaken by gangs, the businesses, because we, you know, cause I, I go eat at one of the local restaurants there to the Chagrin. My wife almost on, on a weekly basis, I go by this one same place. I asked them, I said, well, nothing's changed, except now we don't have police. And people feel safer mm-hmm. without them being there because the perception went away. And they're the ones that created the tension in the community, and they being the police department and the school, too, by the way because they agreed to this presence, and in fact made the communities less safe because people were under more tent and tension, and they were looking to see where the, all this activity was, and there wasn't any. What are you saying in this report, Jim, about community policing? So I think what we're saying is, first of all, that we think this should be part of the conversation. And right now, there's a very large bipartisan conversation happening about addressing mass incarceration, but it's focused almost exclusively on reducing the number of people in prison and reducing the amount of money we spend on corrections. And both of those are, of course, worthy goals that we fully support, but to really address the problems that we raise in the report, it's going to require a more comprehensive approach. And the discussion about policing and police spending has been you know, the political third rail of all third rails. Nobody actually wants to, to ever talk about it. And in fact, it's, it's dangerous the to do so. Almost always, 
exactly. And it's become a sort of reflexive action. Anytime anything, you know, there's a violent incident in the community or any concern about safety, you automatically just throw more police mm-hmm. at the problem. So what we wanted to do is put some information out there that help communities start to have these conversations in different ways and really ask the question whether this is what's serving communities' best interests or not. So if we could go back in time into the early 80s and our policymakers assembled the U.S. public and gave us a choice between two paths that we could take over the next 30 years. Mm-hmm. Path one would involve using our tax dollars to invest in the massive expansion of our justice system, correctional system, the police, courts, prosecutors' offices, and it would result in a tripling of our incarcerated population, um, but would not substantially improve public safety. And then path two, we would make the same level of investment in providing tens of millions of youth with higher quality educational and development opportunities, creating millions of living wage jobs, improving the availability of affordable housing and high quality health care, addressing climate change while keeping the justice system the same size. And we were able to choose between those two paths. And what we ask is, would anyone really have chosen path one? <laughs> and yet, that is exactly what we did. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do is, um, is help folks understand how those choices have, uh, have really affected all of us and what the cost of that has been in terms of other public health and public safety strategies that we might have invested in, and then get people to start thinking about how we might be able to turn that around for the next 30 years so we're not having the same conversation. I think that path one, path two is a consistent part of the narrative that's taking shape right now about policing. You know, we talked about Ava DuVernay's new movie, 13, about the 13th Amendment that's on Netflix that really delves into how incarceration, mass incarceration took the place of slavery to really detain black bodies and profit from black bodies. So that path one, path two, is it's very compelling. And I'm wondering, were politicians and others who have kind of selected path one and, and have led us down this, this road, were there clear options of path one and path two available to them then, Ricardo? You know, path two has always been on the table, mm-hmm. you know, provide more and better schools, provide better health care, provide more jobs. That's always been on the table. Mm-hmm. There was a choice made not to do that. And it's being played out even now where our public education system, even though it gets, it's getting more money, is really getting less money if we were to look at it in actual dollars. Uh, here in Colorado, we have lost money. We have less money now for public education than before. We believe as an organization that Path One was chosen because it created a whole bunch more profit. Mm-hmm. People that supply all the uniforms, people that supply all the stuff that goes in detention and, and jails. You know, it, it costs here in the state, you know, but I think it was $27,000 a year to keep somebody in jail. Well, that money gets spent somewhere. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, you know, $7,000, $8,000 for a student in a school. So somebody who's a provider, uh, they tend to make more money if you're going to spend $27,000 instead of $7,000. So there were choices made, but it wasn't to the benefit of our communities. But we always stress that path two, the one to build an infrastructure and all that stuff that, that keeps our communities vibrant, was a path not chosen. You know, we created more poverty 
you know, when you start splitting families and you have one of the uh, the parents in jail, or you know, uh, for a long period of time over stuff that really shouldn't that have happened, then it created destabilization of families. You know, this is, I think, valuable as a report because you do spend so much time on what was possible as we were spending so much money on the justice system, what was possible instead, and now that we're here and having this conversation, what's possible going forward. Another quote from the report says, we have seen the effects of law enforcement resources becoming hyper-focused on a narrow subset of crime, such that the mistakes of the Black or Latino youth and young adults living in our communities are far more likely to be criminalized than the mistakes of virtually anyone else in the world. And clearly not not even the mistakes, but, you know, when we think about Trayvon Martin and Philando Castile and Rakia Boyd, who weren't doing anything wrong, and still, you know, ended up being policed and surveilled and ultimately losing their lives because of, you know, this broken racial narrative and, and broken perception of who they are. What are the solutions? What is justice reinvestment? What are the three R's that you all identify in this report? Alison, one thing I just wanted to mention, since you raised that quote, as somebody who's been sort of steeped in this kind of data for many years and, and as somebody who's you know been a civil rights lawyer for many years, it takes a lot to surprise me <laughs> with, <laughs> with data. And in calculating some of the data for this report, there's one statistic in there that I just wanted to mention, which is that in 2013, one out of every 18 black residents in the U.S. was under the control of the justice system, either in prison, in jail, on probation or parole, or in an immigrant detention facility. And that includes everyone from, you know, children who were just born um, until all the way up until our, our elders. To me, it's so staggering and so so reflective of the other pieces of the report and how this is how our policy decisions have combined to create this reality. It's really mind-boggling, and so I think the report. What we try to do is start to give people some suggestions about how we can how we can move forward in a way that not just reduces the incarcerated population, which is important, mm-hmm. but that. That creates healthier, stronger, safer communities with a more comprehensive and holistic understanding of, of, of what that means, far more than what we've done previously. So we talk in the report about the three R's of a robust justice reinvestment initiative, uh, and those are to right-size the justice system, meaning to create a justice system that's appropriately sized, to reprioritize the justice system, to make sure that we're using folks in the justice system for the purposes for which they're trained and which they're most appropriate, and then to reinvest. So we can take some of those resources and start investing them in ways that are going to meet the most acute needs in communities around the country, particularly the communities that have been most affected by mass incarceration Mm -hmm. and criminalization. So we offer some recommendations about how to do that. We think this should be a federal priority, a state-level priority, and a local priority because Mm -hmm. the spending is happening at all three um, all three levels. Um, in fact, most of police spending, for example, is local level funding. And so this is the kind of thing that any community member around the country can take on. Any policymaker at any level, local, state, or federal can take on um, because, frankly, we need all three to get to where we need to be. 
When you think about the mechanics of reinvestment, Ricardo, first of all, what are the four components of the justice system? And what do you say to folks who say, but you're talking about jobs, you're you're talking about correctional officers who patrol detention facilities, and the cafeteria workers who work in those places, and, and you're talking about police officers, and they are people who have to feed their families. How does reinvestment actually impact on all of us in positive ways? We could be hiring more teachers if we if we reprioritize our you know our monies. We could be you know opening up new schools. We could be uh, hospitals. So rather than being a correctional officer, you could be a nurse, radiology technician. You could have another job. Cafeteria workers could work in cafeterias in the schools, or they could you know be working someplace else. They could you know go to school and and get a, you know a, a degree in, in mental health. If we were to in, reinvest our monies in creating new jobs and, and new new possibilities for all those workers. We will not be losing workers, and we we'll be creating a, a much safer and healthier communities. Mm-hmm. Do we need a you know an officer in every you know police officer in every school, or do we need a counselor? Do we do we need other a teacher? Do we need more folks in the schools to really provide for the students' needs? Mm-hmm. This idea that if you, if you don't have officers, you're gonna lose all this thing about losing jobs in the correctional facilities. It's because we're looking at one just a certain way, a different one one set of priorities. We just, you know people just look at path one, and if we were to just look at the potential and the possibilities of path two, and invest in those, we'll be actually creating more jobs. Because then people are better employed, not just, and not just the correctional officers. Now you have the community being better employed. Rather than having a family split, you have families and you know, they earn in wages, and so it creates a much healthier community when we have people employed and educated, rather than undereducated and incarcerated. For certain populations, it is a way to control them, and it's a way to keep them in check. And so, rather than, than provide them with an education, we just provide a jail and a cell. Just to give folks just a sense of how comprehensive the recommendations are in this report, you all say, you know, we could spend an extra $6.2 trillion over the coming years on police, prosecutors, courts, jails, and prisons, or we could create over 8 million living wage jobs. We could annually invest $1 billion in each of 100 low-income U.S. communities to implement a comprehensive community development plan. We could transition 39 out of 50 states to 100% clean and renewable energy sources. Or we could provide every child living in poverty with an additional annual investment of $10,000 in their education and other wraparound supports. I really want to congratulate you all. I want to thank you all for this report. The report, again, is the $3.4 trillion mistake, the cost of mass incarceration and criminalization, and how justice reinvestment can build a better future for all. Thank you both. Jim Freeman is the director and founder of the Grassroots Action Support Team, and Ricardo Martinez is the founder and co-executive director of Padres y Jovenes Unidos. Thank you so much for being on, on Schoolhouse today. Thanks for having us, yes. Will you tell people where can they find the report? Where can they find you, Jim? Folks can download the report at 
reinvestforjustice.org. That's reinvest, R-E-I-N-B-E-S-T, the number four, justice.org. And then I can be uh, found at grassrootsupport.org. And my email address is jfreeman, it's J-F-R-E-E-M-A-N, at grassrootsupport.org. And Ricardo, if folks want to find you, how can they do that? You can get an email to Ricardo, it's R-I-C-A-R-D-O, at padresonidos.org. That's P-A-D-R-E-S-U-N-I-D-O-S dot org. So one word, lowercase. Or you can check our website. We have, have all the contact there, and the report is also on, will be online there, too. And the contributors to the report, the $3.4 trillion mistake, are Communities United, Right on Justice, Make the Road New York, Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, and the Grassroots Action Support Team. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Sign up for the Communities for Justice Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. And have a wonderful week.